Hey, Steve. Hi, Matt. <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, we're, this is an interesting new venture we're trying here. Yeah. So, uh, for those who are listening at home first, I'm not sure why, but really, uh, we're, I'm here. I'm Matt Zerwick, uh, also known as Rabbi Zerwick, Rabbi Matt, Rabbi Z. Hey, you, um, or cat boy. My daughter likes to call me. Uh, I still not sure why. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm here, uh, joining with Steve Ingham. I'm excited that we're going to have a chance to, to, meet of the have a meeting of the minds of sorts um in the podcast form we'd been having good conversations uh for a while uh and we realized that we wanted to subject the world to our to our mind to our minds for better or worse uh so i'm uh as i mentioned I, i'm i'm a rabbi ordained uh, from Hebrew Union College. So I'm a reform rabbi. I serve a congregation in Metro Detroit. And I uh, had a chance to meet Steve as he uh, got involved at the temple I serve. We're keeping things relatively uh, anonymous because we are doing this as people, not our not as representatives of any organization. Uh, while we don't intend to say highly controversial or inflammatory remarks, uh, we want to make sure that people hear that these are our own personal words and not as representatives of anything. Um, but we're a couple of, uh, I don't want to speak for Steve. So I'm a, I'm a cis white male who uh, wanted to grapple with some of the issues that are happening today, uh, understands the world and to have conversations to help others understand a world that is changing day by day. Um, and I'm thankful that I'm joined here by Steve Ingham, who can go into more uh, depth into why he brings such an important voice to this conversation. Yeah. So um, I'm a, so we have the, the rabbi and the professor, or at least someone who's working toward being a professor, uh, fingers crossed there. So I come from a, uh, background in academia, so uh, bachelor's degree in communication, master's degree in communication, working on my doctorate degree, my doctorate in communication, so really come from an academic background, doing work in, you know, gender primarily, but also uh, race and class and sort of these power dynamics, hegemony, all of these fun things that, you know, make us stare at the ceiling at 3 a.m. in frustration. So, uh, you know, great conversations with Rabbi Matt Zerwick and um, we really felt like our genius should be shared with the world uh, because as, as we're both cis white men, we feel that, you know, maybe it's, it's time for our us to share. Are we clearly underrepresented. Correct. Yeah. Two more, two more white guys definitely need to be heard on a podcast, but uh, we do think that we bring, and we do hope that we bring a, a different perspective or at least able to between us engage in different perspectives and different ideas um, because we really want to understand the, the issues that are facing us and facing, you know, us personally, our communities, the people around us, the world around us, and try and bring some resolution and um, hopefully some good things out of our conversations beyond just us, you know, being frustrated in a good way, you know, frustrated at things that are happening around us, being able to have those conversations, really be able to branch out and help others. So um, it's kind of one idea that we had 
going into this podcast, one of the reasons why we're doing this now. Yeah, I, I think you hit on a really important ter- term, which is frustration. Um, we, I think, have both expressed levels of frustrations with frustration with what how we see parts of the world, really the some of the important conversations that have needed to happen in society, how they've gone, and how they've been interacted with, the good and the bad, but also uh, understanding that we, as white male, uh, white men, and as uh, folks who at least can pass as majority, uh, you know, white uh, men, uh, it, it, it's important that w- we differentiate that uh, there are a lot of allies, I think, everywhere. And uh, I, I want to learn how to be more of an ally, but I also want to help others to come along with me and to uh, be an ally. That might not mean necessarily that we're asking for action, but merely understanding issues in a way that we hadn't thought of before, being able to see things from different perspectives, from a, perhaps a minority perspective. Um, I, I think it's also interesting, You'll, you, Steve, I think we've talked about this before, the whole idea of a pass, passing as a white uh, you know, majority yeah. man, um, you know, being a, a, a member of the Jewish people um, and having a history as Jews of being oppressed and being targeted because of who we are, are perhaps our, uh, our collective memories do not identify as, as really white or majority. Uh, so I think there've been a lot of, um, there's been some struggle recently with this whole idea of, of white identity. And so we're going to get into those conversations. I'm, I'm actually really interested in getting into those co- sorts of conversations, but there, whatever the, the product of that conversation is first, I don't expect us to come to ever an answer, but second, right. I, I hope that uh, uh, we can help, pass we we pass as white men and so uh whatever that the product of our understanding of our culture is or our which social group we fit into there is this piece of passing where we can walk out onto the street and unless we identify ourselves and choose to identify ourselves as a minority group we could easily integrate into the white world and uh, i think that it's an interesting and complicated perspective. Right. Yeah. It's definitely one that, um, you know, that we're privileged to be able to do. And we're hoping that, um, as I'm fairly certain through our conversations that we had, that we're able to kind of negotiate and understand that privilege, see that, you know, it's, it's sure kind of good that we're able to pass, but it's also problematic that the concept of passing is even in our lexicon, that it's even part of, who we are that we're trying or that we even have the ability to pass whereas others may not you know with both both of us being reformed we don't necessarily dress you know as a movement we don't dress the same as uh, hasidic or orthodox jews might who just by the nature of them dressing according to their practices and traditions are different from right. white culture different from passing even though it's just a matter of clothing so it's it's an interesting dynamic and one that both of us are I, th- I think the word frustration could be kind of the, the subtitle of our podcast is, you know, that we're frustrated. And that's at the, uh, the simmering frustration that we have. I know both of us have 
been dealing with kind of these not necessarily spikes but these instances of fury as well when it comes to the injustice that we see the hypocrisy that we see uh, both within our community and without you know the, the conversations that we have uh, um, yeah frustration is definitely a good word fury is a is a fun word as well when we feel that too so uh, kind of dealing with those things and how are we able to use our frustration and our fury to benefit the world around us as we as we're able to take advantage of that that passing ability yeah yeah and and i think you also hit another important term which is privilege um Mm -hmm. i've been doing a lot of under trying to learn about my own privilege uh but privilege comes from so many different places it does come from race uh unfortunately currently in our society Mm -hmm. it comes from my being male unfortunately right now in our society Uh but it also comes from being able to as you mentioned pass uh to to pass as something that would be less uh that would be a majority uh you know identity uh and also the socioeconomic piece of it um you know being privileged enough to be able to take the time and to have the equipment and the wherewithal and ability to start a podcast uh, and from merely from our points of view and our avocations, uh, being a rabbi and an academic, we are already uh, and educated. I, I hold a master's degree and a rabbinic ordination. Steve holds a master's degree and is all but dissertation at this point. So mm-hmm. we are amongst with that. I'm very cautious not to sound like we're puffing ourselves up or I'm puffing us up, but we, we are amongst a small percentage of Americans who, who find themselves in a, uh, in a position to achieve this sort of academic success and to be able to do something like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even the, just the ability, I mean, it's taking us, I mean, almost no, I mean, realistically, almost no prep time to get our voices out. I mean, we have this this free app that we're able to use. We have access to internet resources, access to you know safe housing. We have access to these things for even us to be able to get our voices out where we might not even have been aware of those privileges of just speaking in a podcast. And whether people listen to us or not, we can still get our voice out and still be heard without being shut down just based on our race or class or identity, it's those things help us in this instance. Right. And I don't have to worry about being angry. If I'm angry, that's kind of accepted as a white male. Yeah. But if I was black or if I was female, being angry would be a far more difficult thing for folks to tune into, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's the, the stereotypes. You don't hear the stereotypes. I mean, there definitely are stereotypes of white people, so stereotypes of all, but it's not nearly as at the level of negativity as there are for people of different statuses. The the angry black man is kind of classified as any man of color, particularly African American, who is angry, regardless of the situation. So these certain men are or how justified. With, yeah, absolutely, and most of the time it is justified, even if it's not. It's an emotion. Yeah, it's right. not a state of being. So it's just interesting that, you know, Lewis black isn't considered an angry white man and that classifies all men, but, but Chris rock might perform this diatribe and he's positioned in the stereotype of an angry black man. 
So it's and those are two people with privilege as well. So it's, so it's much, a very yeah. interesting dynamic and us being able to hopefully, and, and something that both of us are comfortable with is being wrong. And that if we present an idea or position from our own positionality and we're, and it's wrong, it's just misguided or uninformed. We're comfortable with being wrong. And that's something that we strive for in a sense that we're, we want to be, we want to further educate ourselves and better ourselves and better the world around us more importantly. Um, and if us being wrong is the way to do it and that's the way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I also, uh, I'm hoping that uh, – so I, I talk a, b- a bit about this in my professional life. Steve, you may have heard this. Uh, I believe that being able to say I don't know and learning from that is a is a, a very strong thing to do. It's mm-hmm. something you can come from a strength. I don't think it's a weak uh, a weakness to say I don't know. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you're saying I don't know to everything, it becomes more of an issue. Right. But being able to admit that I don't know something, that I have more to learn – I think if we can model how we can have these conversations, be able to acknowledge our blind spots, to learn more, to really challenge ourselves to to be uh, a little bit um, unvarnished here, I'm hoping that we can help uh, the listener, um, the just the, the one listener the one. We, the I'm one. assuming we have. Hi, mom. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. She wouldn't listen to this. <laughs> um, no, I, I'm, I'm hoping that um, if you know those who are listening would be uh, able to take again, not to puff ourselves up, but to see that we can disagree or say we don't know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, or to be wrong, and for that not to be a disqualifier for us uh, or to ca- cast us into a, dark, a bad light. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and we're two points to come off of that. Both of us are comfortable with not being the dominant person in the conversation as far as the one who needs to know everything, even though for both of us as part of our professional lives, we're dependent upon to know a lot of stuff, to know the, the rabbinic perspective, you know, being the rabbi of a congregation in Metro Detroit, as well as being you know, an aspiring professor, someone who teaches uh, the expectation to know something. And I think both of us have our, one of our favorite phrases is, I don't know, but let me go find out. Because it's not only it's personally fulfilling for both of us. We enjoy that research process, but also it's this, you know, within I can speak to academia, within kind of the ivory tower of academia. If you don't know, you're shown as being kind of wrong, and it's not necessarily a one-on-one perspective. Uh, different and professors and researchers understand that people don't know, but there's this kind of perspective that if you don't know, then you're wrong. But when it comes to teaching, if you tell your student, you know, they ask a question, you say. Huh, I never thought about it from that perspective. I don't know, but let me let me get back to you next class. Let me take some time. Let me find out and get back to you. Then that creates this sense of trust. This creates the sense of we are at least on equal footing as far as we're both in the process of learning. And that's something that both Matt and I enjoy as well as something that we strive for in our lives as kind of a, a, a mode of living is that we don't necessarily, we don't know everything. And we were comfortable with that. And we're comfortable with finding out more to be able to better the community around us and instill that level of trust in whom we have around us. Yeah. I, um, when you're talking, the word expectation came up in my mind. Uh, the expectations uh, one has on a, 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 another person from what they might look like, mm-hmm. identity, but also their 
vocation or avocation. And I agree, as a rabbi, if I think of models and expectations of what I think of as the old, the um, the classic identity of a rabbi, it's a, a, a learned, wise, older man mm-hmm. who has all the answers uh, or takes a, you know, um, circumspect, circumspect sort of approach to, to the world's problems. And uh, for every one of those true models, I can point to 12 or 15 or 30 others who don't fill that model uh-huh. to fit that model. And so um, I think what I'm hoping also is to show that it takes all types to do everything. And um, yes, I may be a rabbi. Yes. Steve may be an academia academician. If that, that's a word, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a word. <laughs> okay. Good. <laughs> See already. I don't know. Um, but you, you know, in academia or in, 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 being a member of the clergy, there are a lot of expectations and quite a lot of baggage put on the, the eventual titles, uh, either professor or rabbi. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Yeah. And those come with typically more positive stereotypes with the, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong about being a wise and old rabbi. There's problematic with the, the male part, but there's, you know, being a wise and learned person, same kind of thing with a professor, you know, is you have to, I'm thinking that when I graduate with my doctorate, I'm going to get a tweed jacket with the elbow pads. I think that's instead of a hood, right? They just put, yeah, the jacket they put the you? tweed jacket on you. Yeah. yeah. It still costs a thousand dollars, but they put the tweed jacket <laughs> on you. That's why professors you, wear it every day. They got to get the, the usage out of it. Um, yeah. There's still, that still the stereotype, even though I've never met a professor. Okay. I've met one professor who wears tweed jackets. But there's still that kind of expectation. Part of that has to do with media. And media does a, a, a great job in a lot of things that they do. But they also do a poor job in, in some of the things they do. One of those things is a word that we're going to continue to come back to in this episode as well as future ones is stereotypes. Yeah. So stereotypes of, you know, there's been constant studies in the field of communication alone as well as anthropology, sociology, media studies, cultural studies about the kind of the stereotypes of certain groups and their representation. You know, the, the Native American populations, it's, oh, you're either a chief or you're someone who has foregone the Native American culture in kind of a way that, you know, John Redcorn kind of did in King of the Hill, even though they, they – had that connection anytime he talked about his forefathers his his hair would blow in the wind and so there's kind of that balance between you know well, this this native american connection to the land and assimilation to the american culture but there's still very few representations of native american peoples even though they've been here way longer than in, than europeans have so there is that interesting and that's just one group let alone others whereas there's not a set parameter of what a white man can be on tv isn't that interesting? Why do you think that is? I, I, I ask slightly facetiously, but also I want to hear your answer. <laughs> well, the, the chief mode for Native Americans, it's, it's, it's an interesting stereotype because it's, it's kind of born out of the, the reservation and kind of the voyeurism of the reservation where people come to visit, you know, Europeans, the World's Fair as well, people come to visit and they recognize the feather in the, you know, the band around the head and the chief and the big feathers that they had 
uh, for certain indigenous groups that had those. And so they saw, okay, that equals chief, that equals Native American, whereas other people's Native American or not who could assimilate or chose to assimilate or maybe not assimilate were just people. And so they weren't, that's not a Native American. That's just someone who is wearing a beaded vest. Well, what, yeah. what does that mean? And so there's yeah. that kind of that, that expectation, that stereotype, that expectation of what a Native American looks like. Oh, it has to be someone who's a chief, even though you can't have four chiefs in the same subset of a tribe. That doesn't work. Uh, right. If, if you want to talk about how to figure out what a dominant culture is, just look on popular media. I'm thinking on television and mm. thinking of not even numbers, but I think of the diversity of white faces and white perspectives that there are, mm -hmm. how there's what, you know, a white man doesn't play the same character every time. Mm. And then you look at minority faces and it's essentially playing one of a handful of archetypes, right? Mm -hmm. One of a, f a handful of stereotypes. Now there are some shows and some pieces of media that are, are, are bucking that trend. But I, I, I think of, um, as you said, John Redcorn, uh, from King of the Hill, mm -hmm. even um, even in The Office, I was watching. I've been watching The Office. Steve, you and I have talked about. We watched yeah. The Office, even a show that was produced not that long ago. Uh, there are very few minority faces, and yeah. with an attuned eye, uh, it, there it, it is often. It, it's all boiled down to one or two stereotypes that are represented. Mm -hmm. uh, Either Daryl Philbin, uh, mm -hmm. who is who works in the warehouse, mm -hmm. or Stanley, who works in the off in the office itself, but they very much are boiled down to kind of tropes that have been played on uh, on the more positive side, even. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it, it's. Uh, I found find that there's there's not a whole lot of diversity in the representation of diversity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you even go to more modern presentations. So if you just just Google searches, if you just Google search the word man and look at pictures, it's going to be mostly white guys. It's going to be, um, you know, one of the the areas of this is kind of slightly changing the going into more of my research, which is on pornography the dominant pornography is of white people and that non-white peoples are fetishized to look at the, the black female body as a fetish, to look at the black male body as a fetish or Latina or Asian, specifically Japanese as a fetish, whereas white women is not a fetish. It's just the default. And even something as you know broad as pornography is or television or movies, there's just the default is what we just kind of accept. And even within television, going back to television, there's a lot of great shows with different presentations specifically of the African-American community, but they're all pocketed on BET to where it's, you know, it's great that BET exists, but there's, it's, there seems to be a lack of, of white people who are engaging in that because they understand what's going on. They're not seeing the familiar tropes. I'm generalizing. I don't know 100%, but there are engaging in those familiar tropes that they see. And even on the office, you know, with Kelly Kapoor and Oscar Martinez, even though those two characters and those two actors could break and they, the office, the American version really does kind of play with those stereotypes. Um, you know, you have 
Oscar Martinez and Kelly Kapoor. You know, the naming is very much part of those cultures, whether it's in yeah. India culture with Kelly Kapoor, uh, Mindy, um, or Oscar Martinez, Oscar Nunez. Um, it, there's an interesting dynamic between what is a, a stereotype of a culture versus what is holding on to the pride of that culture. Right. It's, when, it, when it's a white person telling you to hold on to that pride of the culture, is it really doing that? And that's, I'm not 100% sure because I've never talked to Greg Daniels, but you know, who adapted it to American television. I'm also watching The Office right now. So um, <laughs> we can have a podcast just on that to join the 30 other podcasts that are just on The Office. Right. But but where is that line and, and what role do we have? I mean, our voices, yes, we're kind of facetiously pointing, facetiously pointing it out there that we're adding our voices to a sea of us already having voices. But our voices have been heard on television before. We're not a novel perspective necessarily. We might add a nuance to it, but we're not a new overall perspective. Right. And um, <laughs> I, as you, we were just, uh, I did a quick Google search. This came up a number of years ago as well. Uh, if you do a quick Google search of three white teens and three black teens, there was a expose in the guardian a couple of years ago of this though. Um, so it's gotten slightly better, but mm -hmm. it's gotten better only because of the guardian is now one a few of the uh, respond the uh, uh, results, but mm -hmm. if you do a, a Google image search of three black teens and three white teens, the three white teens are playing, laughing, what have you, and the three black teens, uh, unfortunately, have been more by and large mugshots mm -hmm. or other sort of negative stereotypes, and. Uh, that's really problematic to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, even pushing from that a little bit, I mean, at Wayne State University, we received most universities that have a police force do this. They send out police reports. So when a crime happens on campus, they send out a report of what happened. And I did a survey of them in my communication theory course last semester uh, in the fall of 2019, where I just opened up all of those at the same time. And just showed, asked my class to find what the similarity was. And of the 15 or so emails that we received, 14 of them said that the criminal was a, a low to mid 20s, five foot 10 ish black male. And it was, the, I mean, to th those are just the ones that were reported. There's more crime than just those 15 that yeah. happened. I guarantee that non black people are doing it too, non black men are doing it too. But the, the reporting, if you're consistently hit over the head with the stereotype, right? it's was, not I'm a surprise where people are ingrained with that stereotype. That 15th, was that a black male as well? No, the 15th was, I'm not sure if they reported, I don't remember if they reported the race or if it was a white so male. That's, that's where I think I'm stuck to <laughs> because the police reporting uh, news reports, they tend to identify if it's a black male or female, mm -hmm. but when they're white, it doesn't say white. It mm -hmm. doesn't, or you it use it euphemistically. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's even in our reporting of crime, it, it, there's a, a bias and an unbalance um, that, that makes everybody suspect. I'd mm -hmm. imagine, you know, if, if everyone, if you got 14 reports that, there was a bald man with a beard running around campus. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'd imagine I get stopped quite often. Mm -hmm. um, 
but you know, they feel like that sets, sets up this whole, um, desperate police presence and treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I've, I've read this in several different places. I wish I remember a direct source that I had for you, but it's, it's a perspective from a black male who says, you know, when the, when the suspect of the crime is a black male between the ages of 18 and 30, between the heights of five foot six and six foot two, wearing a baseball hat and jeans. It's a large, that's a that's, large number of people. That's a large number of people. And so all of a sudden you're the suspect, even if you had, so now the police, you're even more surveilled just based on the a very, very broad interpretation of what you look like. Whereas for white suspects, there's at least a, a better nuance of it's, it's almost like there's this, this stereotype of even reporting what's what the criminal might look like. Cause with, me, you know, I'm an a- I'm average in a lot of different ways. I'm average height, I'm average weight, I'm average. But I've never been surveilled based on a criminal report. Right. Even though I am kind of the mean that we default to, that we regress back to, I've never been surveilled. But if I was a black male with, you know, wearing a baseball hat and jeans, because it's the fall on a college campus, everyone's wearing <laughs> a baseball hat and jeans. You're just surveilled. You're based wearing on a most- shirt too, I hope, though. Well, yeah, sometimes. Well... <laughs> Depends on if I teach that day. Depends um, on what the, pol- the police report says at the end. Right. Okay. But it's, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's that deference, definite surveillance that's added onto it. And, and surveillance is another aspect too, not only going with stereotypes, but there's this cycle of surveillance. It's a cycle of, you know, not only people of minority being surveilled in stores and in, you know, grocery, uh, grocery markets and things like that, but also the communities. Now, the, the people of color are put into these communities based on economic and educational opportunities and they're surveilled even more because there's an expectation of crime. But if you were to surveil any other community, affluent, white, different colors, whatever, you would find just as much crime. It's not mm-hmm. that, that people of color are committing more crime. It's just that there are more people looking all the time. And so, you know, even though the crimes might look slightly different because naturally they would in a different neighborhood, it, there's no less crime happening somewhere else so that the, there's less resources or, or to put it in the inverse, there's more resources put on surveilling a certain community all the time to right. find, to find this, I'm quoting, to find this crime. Well, well, yeah, let's, let's look at the, one of the more, most recent and most egregious examples is the yeah. Breonna Taylor episode yeah. in, in uh, Louisville in, uh, in Kentucky. Um, the police executed a no knock warrant, a warrant mm-hmm. meaning they didn't have to knock. They didn't have to announce themselves as, as police, they were able to come up into a house at two, two, three in the morning, uh, break open the door, not announce themselves, draw guns on uh, a couple who was sleeping in bed. Uh-huh. And because they were looking for uh, suspects who vaguely resembled Brianna Taylor's boyfriend who had been arrested a town over. And who who had already been who were already in police custody, mm-hmm. but because Brianna Taylor's boyfriend looked, you know, fit that description, they that allowed the police to execute this warrant, which led to Brianna Taylor's death. Not because of truly, not because anyone except for the police did anything wrong. Brianna Taylor's boyfriend did exactly what the NRA has told white gun owners to do forever. 
which mm-hmm. is if you have a gun, have a gun in your home as a, as a way to defend yourself, you never know when the bad guy is going to break in with a gun and you need to defend yourself. That's exactly what he did. He didn't know who was breaking in. They were asleep. It was dark. No one had said it was the police. And so he pulled a gun and he, and he used it to defend himself. And then the police returned fire and, you know, killing, killing his girlfriend who had done nothing wrong. He had done nothing wrong, but because he fit a description, it was enough for them to break into their home, Mm -hmm. enough for the police to break into their home. I, if that happened in a white house, not a white house, but if it happened to a white family, those police would have been arrested, fired, something. Mm-hmm. Those those police are still, they're still out there. Yeah. Well, even if we back up a second, how many? I mean, there's got to be research out there that shows how many no knock warrants have been executed on people of color versus people who are without color. Right. I mean, the concept of the no knock warrant assumes that the person inside is armed and ready to fight and kill right when at two or three o'clock in the morning they're asleep or i i would actually expand that how many no-knock warrants have been executed against white affluent crime breakers yeah there are plenty of affluent white people who have broken laws there are plenty of white folks of means who have done some really bad stuff. The, uh, uh, Dylan roof. Yeah. I, I even hate to say that name. I, cause he doesn't deserve any notoriety at all. Uh, he went in and shot nine people in a church and the police bought him Burger King on the way to the jail. Mm-hmm. And then we see, um, black defendants who were resisting arrest because they wanted to know where the pol- what the police were doing in their home. Mm-hmm. Who are well? I, I'm I have to admit I I'm blanking on his name. He uh, he was taken into custody and given a rough ride in a van and it broke his back and killed him. Um, do you recall his name? No, I don't. He, um, but the, that, you know, the, the difference is in even once the crime has been committed, how people are treated, mm-hmm. uh, how, uh, a, a black ex felon who casts a vote because she thinks she can vote. Yeah. Uh, versus someone who has purposely filed three fraudulent ballots in one election one is given a warning and one is given five years in prison. You know, mm-hmm. I don't have to tell anybody who, who got what mm-hmm. because we just know it's, um, it, it, it's, it's, it's interesting because if we wanted to, we could just ignore it. Mm-hmm. We have not found ourselves on that side of police treatment. Most likely we won't find ourselves on that side of police treatment. Mm -hmm. 
and we have the luxury of paying attention or not mm -hmm. the privilege, I suppose. But at this point, I think what's harder for us to understand, Steve, you can speak for yourself here is how we can, how there are folks who, who, who are still not concerned when we have that evidence straight in front of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of almost, well, not really kind of, it's using that picks or it didn't happen kind of mentality. But even then the picks aren't enough or the video isn't enough. And it's, I mean, this links back to a course on whiteness I took with Dr. Ronald Jackson at the university of Cincinnati, where one of the discussions we had when um, purposefully name dropping there, when um, <laughs> for the four people who are going to understand who Ronald Jackson, the second is. So uh, and we had this conversation and one of the conversation points that we had was that, and something that my friend Brendan and I didn't really understand until it was brought up to us is that we can, for the most part, we choose to not talk about race and that's fine. Whereas for a lot of people of color, especially one of the, my classmates, Brandon, he couldn't not talk about race. That wasn't a choice. Like it was always there. Now, of course he could not engage in conversations, but it was always a part of him. Whereas Brendan and I could go into a class and talk about race for two hours and 50 minutes once a week for a semester. Right. And the rest of our rest of our day was, okay, let's focus on other things. Whereas for some people of color, it's a constant thing that's always, and it's these different tropes. And one thing that you and I have talked about beforehand that we want to make sure to avoid is we're, we're not trying to make someone of, of a person of color explain to us. Like we're not trying to make it where we're white, therefore teach us. Right. It's we want to engage in these conversations and, and being wrong is something that we're comfortable with. And, and part of it is going back to the with the examples of Breonna Taylor and uh, Emmett Till even further back. And, you know, a lot of these people is police reporting. We have I'm this default. Arbery. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All of them. Yeah. And it's not a magnitude of or a matter of me forgetting names. It's a it's the no, magnitude all of, of all yeah. of them in the police reporting. And that police reporting legally, whatever the police report says, that's what happened. And you can make fun of it like Mike Birbiglia did in one of his specials where he got into an accident with himself because the police reported it that way. And so he couldn't sue the drunk driver who hit him because the police report said that he hit himself, which was impossible. To the point where, you know, got roughed up or, or had a rough ride and broke his back or the, the person at the protests the old, the 75 year old man who was pushed down, the original police report was that he tripped and fell right. or whatever the reporting. And that's cases where video is evident. And it's, it's part of the arrogance of whiteness, this concept of whiteness, where it's not just that we made a, we, with me, including myself in this whiteness perspective for a second, we are able to do this because we want to, it's we're able to do this regardless of what you think. Right. And we know we can get away with it. We know well, that we can do this police reporting in this way and be fine. You know, I think what part of it, I think what's been interesting with the late, the most recent protests has been um, it's been almost too clear how the rhetoric is crafted in a way. So um, what started getting folks most concerned about police reform maybe started uh, with George Floyd, mm -hmm. but it, that's not where it 
really took off. What I think it took off when people saw these normal, I hate to even use these words, but I'm using it as far as the, how it's perceived by society, a bunch of white kids getting attacked by police. Mm -hmm. It, it took, um, it took that level of personalizing something in order to, to, but even while that's happening, there were pains taken to paint these protesters, not as just students or Mm -hmm. as concerned citizens of the world or white kids and black kids together fighting for something that needs to change. They were trying to paint everyone as the other mm-hmm. Antifa, which suddenly is apparently a bad thing being anti-fascist, but right. Antifa um, it's these outside agitators. It's not, it's not your kids who are getting attacked by the police. It's these wannabe terrorists who are, who are attacking the police. And so the police are even the rhetoric around it is so clearly trying to other people in in order to take away their voice or to to make it feel like it's less of a problem when the police are shooting tear gas at people mm-hmm. um if if we're willing and able to take a step back from the narrative and try to peel back how things are being referred reported and perhaps wondering or kind of trying to peel back why I think we can start understanding more deeply how big this problem is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's when, you know, it's, it's when the clergy get involved that, and not just the radical clergy, but mainstream clergy, when they get involved, people start taking note. Mm-hmm. Um, you know there there are too many examples in the in the recent past of places where there's just been true, awful, terrible injustice and terrible you know lack of humanity in in how folks are treated. And um, last summer, when when um, a couple of summers, I mean the last number of summers when the immigration. Uh, debates have been happening and where children are caged and it, it, it got to the point where there were clergy talking and, and yelling and there are rabbis who were going to down to the detention centers and getting arrested. And even then um, it, it was like not quite enough to turn public opinion uh, somehow, you know, our, country was comfortable with caging people who didn't look like us because they didn't belong to us. You know, they were, they were others and they were othered and successfully othered. Uh It's when, it's when you can't successfully other, I think is when society starts actually taking note. Uh Yeah. And one of the, um, you know, it's kind of based on the Edward Said notion of othering. Uh, with the the Orientalism where he brought that from with the East versus the West, but it's also a similar concept with the cages and, uh, you know, there's the Uh-oh, Steve, I can't hear you. Can you hear me? Oh, there you are. Okay. All right. So, um, I don't, I don't know where we got cut off. So the, the, the yeah, the cages here, 
you know, I believe that individual racists are not that prevalent. I don't, I don't think that there, there are that many. But what happens is that this is, and I'm not original here, that there's institutional racism that's causing this. And the othering is more than just like with the, the what's happening on the southern border and what's still happening on the southern border. It's not so much that people are saying they are Mexican or they are Guatemalan or they are whatever it might be. Therefore, they deserve in cages, but they are illegal immigrants. They're, they're illegals, not even illegal immigrants, right? Illegals, it's, it, it takes away the idea that they might have migrated or immigrated. We're all immigrants, right? Every, everyone in the United States who isn't member a member of a native community is an immigrant. So we could easily personalize that, but mm -hmm. no, we're, they're illegals. Mm -hmm. they're, they are purposefully used words that super duper other them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. So Steve, I, I think that next, so assuming that we have an, a massive audience after hearing this rousing conversation, <laughs> I assume that next, I think next podcast, let's start talking about, uh, white identity in Judaism. There's been a lot most recently about Ashkenormativity, uh, -huh. uh, being an Ashkenazi Jew, a white European Jew, and how that culture has been the dominant culture in Judaism when uh, we know uh, how broad Judaism looks and how um, how not white European many Jews are. Arab, mm -hmm. Southern European, um, Asian, uh, so black, uh, Hispanic. So um, I, I'd like to focus next time um, on some of the scholarship around uh, white identity and Ashken, Ashken normativity uh -huh. um, and, and what that means. I, you know, I, I think there's a, there's an ongoing debate about what white privilege looks like in the Jewish community, but also how, how white Jew would, you know, how white the Jewish community is. Uh -huh. um, what's interesting is, is so that that is so very individual at this point. But I think it's important to start talking about it in that way. Um, so I want to thank everybody who stuck with us to listen to this conversation. Um, this is going to be a this obviously this is the first, so it, the podcast will continue to evolve from here. But I hope that you found yourself nodding along for some of with some of our points. Um, I, there's a lot to unpack. There's a lot to talk about. But we hope that you uh, will come along with us as we explore this whole identity, whiteness, uh, Judaism, minority, majority culture, and and how we are supposed to be, um, you know, living and moving toward a world that looks different, and how we individually can, uh, you know, expand our learning and expand our understanding so that we can help push the world toward uh, perhaps a little bit more of a just place. So I want to thank you uh, on behalf of myself for joining us. Uh, hopefully you will join us next time as we talk more about, um, about privilege and identity. So uh, Steve, I want to thank you for being uh, a great podcast partner. And I want to give you a chance to, to say a few things as well, if you want. Yeah, it's great to have these conversations. Uh, I look forward to kind of this tension that we're feeling, that we're constantly feeling this level of frustration that I know has been building and building up in me. 
so I, yeah, I'm excited to continue these conversations. I think that we'll bring some good conversations to the front. And, and for people who are listening, we encourage you to challenge us and to have to continue these conversations and to you know critique us when we make mistakes because we're we're open to making those mistakes. Um, and as for your your fun little tip of the day, uh, COVID masks are completely pointless if you don't cover your nose. So please do so. <laughs> please be safe out there. However, take care of yourself and those around you, and we will see you next time.